This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Fjord of Killery by Kevin Barry, which was published in The New Yorker in February of 2010. It was by now a hysterical downpour, with great sheets of water streaming down from Wulria, and the harbour roared in the fattening light. Visibility was reduced to 14 feet. This all signalled that the West of Ireland holiday season had begun. The story was chosen by Douglas Stewart, whose first novel, Shuggy Bane, won the Booker Prize in 2020. Hi, Douglas. Hi, Deborah. How are you? I'm all right. Welcome. When we talked about doing this, you had originally been inclined to choose a Scottish story to read on the podcast, but in the end, you settled on an Irish one. Do you think the the two traditions are interlocked? They certainly have uh, a very close relationship, but even in reading the Kevin Barry story, I realized how much of the pronunciation and the expressions weren't uh, familiar to my ear. And so although they're close, they are quite different. Mm -hmm. In terms of um, this story, it feels a little like a fairy tale in a sense. I mean, it has that sort of fable-like quality to it. And... um, I feel as though it may work in a tradition of Irish fables. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's certainly in that tradition of Irish oral storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts off with, uh, you know, the narrator saying, so I bought an old hotel on the fjord of Killery. And just the way he brings you into the story, you have a sense that not only is it a fable, but it's the type of story we would pass around in pubs and from mouth to mouth. And that, I think, is the Irish tradition and certainly the Scottish tradition, because sometimes when we don't find ourselves in literature, it doesn't mean we're not natural-born storytellers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and those uh, oral stories don't always get written down. That is absolutely true, yeah. And I think that's part of the charm of this is... Uh, just the mixture of these characters, when you say it's like a fable, for me, it almost feels quite otherworldly at times. And uh, uh, I chose the story because, first of all, it's just thoroughly entertaining, but also because it made me nostalgic for a time when we could gather and and be together without thinking about the consequences of that or the weight that comes with with those gatherings. Yeah, yeah. Having scenes in a, in a pub with everyone talking, is, it feels like another world. It's true. Did you read the story when it first came out in 2010? I didn't actually. I was led to Kevin Barry's short stories because I'm an enormous fan of his novel, uh, Night Boat to Tangier. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to read, um, I thought, oh, I love Kevin Barry. And I was actually surprised to see he has published many stories in The New Yorker. Yeah, this was the first one, I believe. And um, do you think that this one sort of fits in with his general themes? It does. I I find him always uh, writing about masculinity and especially men on the margins. But what's interesting about this is there's an absence of hard men or criminals or uh, petty gangsters that often populate his novels or his other short stories. These are just people who are gathering together in a pub uh, and there's a poet at the heart of it. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Douglas Stewart reading Fjord of Killery by Kevin Barry. Fjord of Killery So I bought an old hotel on the Fjord of Killery. It was set hard by the harbour wall with Mulria mountain across the water and disgracefully grey skies above. 
It rained 287 days of the year, and the locals were given to magnificent mood swings. On the night in question, the rain was particularly violent. It came down like handfuls of nails flung hard and fast by a seriously riled sky god. I was at this point eight months in the place, and about convinced that it would be the death of me. It's end of the fucking world stuff out there, I said. The chorus of locals in the hotel's lounge bar, as always, ignored me. I was a fretful blow-in, by their mark, and simply not cut out for tough, gnarly, west-of-Ireland living. They were listening, instead, to John Murphy, our alcoholic funeral director. I'll bury anything that fucking moves, he said. Bastards, suicides, tinkers, he said. I couldn't give a fucking monkeys, he said. Mulria is the most depressing mountain you've ever seen, by the way, and its gaunt, looming shape filled almost every view from the Water's Edge Hotel, the lounge bars included. The locals drank mostly Bushmills whiskey and Guinness stout, and they drank them to great excess. I wiped their slops from the counter with a bar cloth I had come to hate with a passion verging on the insane. I said, But seriously, that's one motherfucker of a high tide, no? Barely the toss of a glance I received. The talk had shifted to roads, mileage, general directions. They made a geography of the country by the naming of pubs. Do you know Madigan's in Maynooth? I do, of course. You'd take a left there. Ah, have you now? The hotel had 23 bedrooms and listed westward. Set a can of peas on the floor of just about any bedroom and it would roll slowly in the direction of the gibbering Atlantic. The estate agent had gussied up the history of the place in the brochure. A traditional coaching inn, original beams, visited by Thackeray, heritage bleeding out the wazoo, etc. And I had leapt at it. I was the last of the hopeless romantics. The talk had moved on briefly from roads and directions. If he's still around when her bandages come off, Bill Knott, the surveyor, said, he's a braver man than me. Nice woman, John Murphy agreed, as long as you don't put your hand in the cage. Behind the bar, the Guinness taps, the Smithwick's taps, the Lager taps, the line of optics, the neatly stacked rows of glasses, and a high stool that sat by a wee slit of window that had a view across the water towards Woolria. The iodine tang of kelp hung in the air always and put me in mind of embalming fluid. Bill Knott looked vaguely from his bushmills towards the water. Highish, all right, he said. But now, what would we be talking about for Bill Mullet? Would you say, off a slow road? The primary interest of these people's lives, it often seemed, was how far one place was from another and how long it might take to complete the journey, given the state of the roads. Bill had been in Hollage as a young man and considered himself an expert. I don't know, Bill, I said. Would we say an hour twenty if you weren't tailbacked out of Newport? I said I really don't fucking well know, Bill. There are those who'll say you'll do it in an hour, he sipped delicately. But you'd want to be grease-fucking-lightning coming up the Westport direction, wouldn't you? We could be swimming it yet, Bill. I had made, despite it all, a mild success of myself in life. But on turning forty the previous year, I had sensed exhaustion rising up in me like rot. Before forty, you think that exhaustion is something like a long-lasting hangover. But at forty, you learn all about it. Even your passions exhaust you. I found that to be alone with the work all day was increasingly difficult, and the city had become a jag on my nerves, 
there was too much young flesh around. The brochure about the hotel appeared in my life like a revelation. I clutched it in my hands for days on end. I grew feverish with the notion of a westward flight. I lay in bed with the brochure as the throb of the city sounded like a raspy, taunting note, and I moaned as I read. Original beams. Traditional coaching in. Thackeray. Established. 1648. The hotel had the promise of an ideal solution. I could distract myself from myself with its day-to-day running, its endless small errands, and perhaps late at night or very early in the morning, I could continue at some less intense level with the poetry. All of my friends, every last one of them, said, The Shining. But I was thinking, the west of Ireland, the murmurous ocean, the rocky hills hard-founded in a greenish light, the light of a sad dream, the cleansing air, the stoats peeping shyly from gaps in the dry stone walls. Yes, it would all do to make a new man of me. Of course, I hadn't counted on having to listen to my summer staff, a pack of healthily energetic young Belarusians fucking one another at all angles of the clock. And the ocean turned out to be a gibber rather than a murmur. Gibber, gibber, whoosh. Gibber, gibber, whoosh. Down the far end of the bar, Mick Harty, distributor of bull semen for the vicinity, was molesting his enormously fat wife, Vivian. We're after a meal at the place run by the Dutch faggots, he said. Oysters for a starter. They have me gone fucking bananas. Vivian slapped and roared at him as he stroked her massive haunches. She reddened and chortled as he twisted her around and pulled her vast rear side into his crotch area. Nobody, apart from me, paid a blind bit of attention to the spectacle. And even as she suffered a pretend butt rape from her cackling husband, she turned to me and informed me, precisely, what they had paid for the meal at the Dutch couple's restaurant. Two starters, two mains, we shared a dessert, two bottles of wine, two cappuccinos, she said as Mick grinded slowly behind her, hoarsely yodelling an Alicia Keys ballad. 136 euros, even. Not cheap, Quiven. Cappuccino is a breakfast drink, I said. You're not supposed to have it after a meal. I was not well liked in Killery. I was considered superior. Of course I was fucking superior. I ate at least five portions of fruit and veg daily. I had omega-3 from oily fish coming out my ears. I limited myself to 21 units of alcohol a week. I hadn't written two consecutive lines of a poem in eight months. I was becoming versed, instead, in the strange, illicit practices of the hill country. Fuckers are washing diesel up there again, John Murphy said. The hooligans? Of course they'd a father diesel washer before them, didn't they? Cunts to a man. Cunts, Bill Knock confirmed. Outside, the rain continued to hammer away at our dismal little world, and the sky had shucked the last of its evening grey to take on an intense purplish tone that was ominous, close-in, biblical. "'Sky is weird not like I don't know fucking what,' I said. John Murphy grabbed my elbow as I passed along the bar. He was aggressive always, once the third pint was downed, and he said, "'I suppose you know that possessed fucking she-devil above in the house will put me in the ground.' "'John,' I said. I really don't want to hear about it. I mean literally, Queven. She'll fucking do for me. John, your marriage is your own private business. She's fucking poisoning me. 
I swear to bleeding fucking Jesus, I can taste it off the fucking tea, Queeve. Would you go again, John? I indicated his empty stout glass. Oh, please, he said. They were all nut jobs. This is what it came down to. This is the thing you learn about habitual country drinkers. They suffer all manner of delusions, paranoia, warped fantasies. It's a most intense world indeed that a hard drinker builds around himself, and it is difficult for him not to assume that everyone else in the place is involved with it. Makes a man of sixty, Vivian Harty said, awed at the persistence of her husband's desires, and he'll still get up on a cracked fucking plate. Just then, a cacophony erupted. From the hillsides, everywhere, came the aggravated howl of dogs. These were amped to an unnatural degree. The talk in the lounge bar stalled for a moment in response, but just as abruptly, it resumed. The tiramisu, Mick Harty said, you wouldn't know whether to eat it or smear it all over yourself. Nadia, one of my Belarusians, came through from the supper room and sullenly collected some glasses. The arse on that, John Murphy said. Please, John, I said. Two apples and a hanky, he said. I believed all nine of my summer staff to be in varying degrees of sexual contact with one another. I housed them in the dreary, viewless rooms at the back of the hotel, where I myself lived during what I will laughably describe as high season, the innocence, and my sleepless nights were filled with the sound of the rotating passions. Thank you, Nadia, I said. She scowled at me as she placed the glasses in the dishwasher. I was never allowed to forget that I was paying minimum wage. The dogs had stopped. The rain continued. It was by now a hysterical downpour, with great sheets of water streaming down from Woolria and the harbour roared in the fattening light. Visibility was reduced to 14 feet. This all signalled that the west of Ireland holiday season had begun. He was thrown down, John Murphy said, speaking of a man he had lately buried. He went into himself. He didn't talk for a year and a half, and then he choked on a sausage. You'd visit, and he'd say nothing to you, but he'd know you were there. The little eyes would follow you around the room. Age was he when he went, John? Forty-two? Youngish? Ara, he was better off out of it. My first weeks out at the water's edge, I'd kept a surreptitious notebook under the bar. The likes of Thrun Down would get a delighted entry. I would guess that the likely etymology from thrown down, as in laid low, but I'd quickly had my fill of these maudlin bastards. This, by the way, was the Monday of the May bank holiday weekend. Killery was en fête. Local opinion, cheerfully, was that it had been among the wettest bank holidays ever witnessed. The few deluded hillwalkers and cyclists who had shown up had departed early in wordless outrage, and in the library room of the water's edge there was just a pair of elderly couples still enjoying the open fire. I left the bar and took a pass through the library to smile at them, to throw on a few sods of turf and to make sure they hadn't died on the premises. They stared into the flames. That's some evening, I tried, but there was no response. Both couples held hands and appeared to be significantly tranquilised. Coming through the lobby again, I looked out through the windows and saw a pair of minks creep over the harbour wall. They crossed the road in perfect tandem and headed for the rising fields beyond the hotel. I went back into the bar. I found that I had an odd nausea developing. 
They can cut out that particular gland, Bill Knott said, but if the wound goes septic after... He shook his head hopelessly. That, he said, is when the fun and games start. Mine was one of four licensed premises in a scattered district of 300-odd souls. This is a brutal scarcity, by Irish ratios, so there was enough trade to keep us all tunnelling towards oblivion. The bar was another of the elements that had sold the place to me. It was pleasant, certainly, with an old-fashioned mahogany finish, zinc-topped low tables, and some prints of photo finishes from fabled race meetings at Ballybrit. I always tended bar in the evenings. I'd had a deranged notion that this would establish me as a kind of charming innkeeper figure. This was despite the fact that not one but two ex-girlfriends, both of them admittedly sharp-tongued academics, had described my manner as funereal. The barside babble continued unchecked. Bill Knott was now reckoning the distance to Derry if he were to go via Enniskillen. Vivian Harty was telling John Murphy that that wasn't tuppence worth of a coat his wife had on the Tuesday gone, that he was looking after her all the same, and that no woman deserved it more given what she'd been through with the botched hysterectomy. Mick Harty talked of the cross-border trades and stallions and looked faintly murderous. Our horses, the fuckers are after now, he said. Nadia, meantime, was singing weird Belarusian pop beneath her breath as she got up on the footstool to polish the optics. A seep of vomit rose in my gullet. I was so sick. I was failing spectacularly at this whole mine host lark. I quietly leaned on the bar by the till. I looked out the small window. Watery it was. Seriously, lads, we haven't seen a tide that high, surely, I said. Have we? It was lapping by now at the top of the harbour wall. The estate agent had assured me that the place never flooded. I'd looked the slithery old fuck in the eye and believed him. I'd suspected, I had hoped, that the life I found out here would eventually do something for my work. Something would gestate in me. I'd be able to move away from all the obtuse, arrhythmic stuff about the sex heat of cities that had made me mildly famous in provincial English departments. My poetry was known of, but was not a difficulty for the Caleri locals. There had never been a shortage of poets out there. Every last crooked rock of the place had at some point seated the bony arse of some hypochondriacal epiphany seeker, some fucker who'd forever be giving out about his lungs. You'd do jail time for that, John Murphy said. He was eyeing once more the rear quarters of Nadia as she headed for the kitchen. John, I've warned you about this, I said. I'm only saying, he said. He suddenly turned back to his stout. The people of this part of North Galway are oversexed, that is my belief. I'd found a level of ribaldry that bordered on the paganistic. It goes back, of course. They lick it up off the crooked rocks. Thackeray, indeed, remarked on the corsetless dress of rural Irish women and the fact that they kissed perfect strangers in greeting, their vast bosoms swinging. It's not, John Murphy said, like I'm going to take a lep at the little bitch. My lepin' days are long fucking over. If I sold the place for even three quarters of what I'd paid for it, I could buy half of Cambodia and do a colonel fucking curts on it. Lovely, cold-hearted Nadia came running from the kitchen. She was as white as the fallen dead. Is Otter, she cried. What? Is Otter in kitchen, she cried. He was eating soup when I got there. Carrot and coriander from a ten-gallon pot. 
Normally, they are terribly skittish otters, but this fellow was languorous as a surfer. Nervously, I shooed him toward the back door. He took his own sweet time about heading there. Once outside, he aimed not for the tideline rocks where the otters all lived, but for the higher ground, south. I looked out toward the harbour. The harbour wall was disappearing beneath spilling sheets of water. I came back into the lounge. A fucking otter is right, I said. They looked at me, the locals, in quiet disgust, as if I could expect no less than otters in the kitchen, the way I was after letting things go. I pointed to the harbour. Will it flood? I asked, and there was a quake in my tone. You'd make good time coming out of Sligo, normally, Bill Knott said. Unless you had a Thursday on your hands. But of course them fuckers have any amount of road under them since McSharry was minister. I said, will it flood, Bill? Will it flood? Are you even listening to me? A grey silence swelled briefly. Hasn't in sixteen years, he said. Won't now. I spent all my waking hours keeping the water's edge on the go. I was short-breathed, tense, out of whack. I was at roughly the midpoint of what, for poets, would be termed a long silence. Five years had passed since my last collection. Any time I sat down to a page or screen, I felt as if I might weep, and I didn't always resist the temptation. Mountain, bleakness, the lapidary rhythms of the water, the vast schizophrenic skies, these weren't inspiring poetry in me. They were inspiring hopeless lust and negative thought patterns. Again and again, the truth was confronting me. I was a born townie, and I had made a dreadful mistake in coming here. I set down a fresh bushmills for Bill Knott. This place you're crowder from, he said. Belarus? Yes, Bill. What way'd they be for road out there? When you think, Vivian Harty said, of what this country went through for the sake of Europe when we went on our hands and fucking knees before Brussels to be given the lick of a fucking butter voucher, and as soon as we have ourselves even halfways right, these bastards from the back end of nowhere decide they can move in wherever they like and take our fucking jobs. On the killery hillsides, the dogs howled again in fright night sequence. One curdling scream giving way to another. They were even louder now than before. Mother of Jesus, John Murphy said. The dogs were so loud now as to be unignorable. We all went to the windows. The roadway between hotel and harbour wall had in recent moments disappeared. The last of the evening light was an unreal throb of Kermit Green. The dogs howled. The rain continued. The roads, Bill Knott said at last impressed, will be unpassable. Mick Harty's hands slipped down over the back of Vivian's thighs. The rain came in great, unstoppable drifts on a high westerly from the Atlantic. That ain't quitting any time soon, I said, stating the blindingly obvious. Water's up to the second step, Vivian Harty noted. Four old stone steps led up to the inn's front porch. And rising, Mick Harty said. I haven't seen rain the likes of that, John Murphy said, since Castlebar, the March of 73. What did we be talking about for Castlebar, Bill Knott said. Forty-five minutes on light road. We moved back from the windows. Our movement had become curiously choreographed. Quiet calls were made on mobiles. We spoke now in whispers. All along the fjord, word quickly had it, 
the waters had risen and had breached the harbour walls. The emergency services had been alerted. There was talk, a little late for it, of sandbagging. We were joined in the lounge bar by six of the nine Belarusians. The other three had gone to the Cineplex in Westport, fate having put on a Dan Brown adaptation, and by the two elderly couples who had managed not to die off in the library. I said, A round of drinks on the house, folks. We may be out here for some time. Applause greeted this. I felt suddenly that I was growing into the mine host role. There was a conviviality in the bar, the type that is said to come always with threatened disaster. Great howls of wind echoed down the Duluff Valley, and they were answered in volleyed sequence by the howls of the killery dogs. Four of the six Belarusians wore love bites on their necks as they sipped at their complimentary bottled Heinekens. They were apparently feasting delightedly on one another in my back rooms. The elderlies introduced themselves. We met Alan and Nora Fettel from Limerick and Jimmy and Janie McAllister from Limavady. They were the least scared amongst us, the least odd. Yon wind's changing, Jimmy Mac said. Yon wind's shifting easterly, so tis. I wouldn't like the sounds of that, John Murphy said. Not much good will ever come out of a swapping wind. You'd hear that said. It was also said in Killery that an easterly wind unseated the mind. I shot a glance outside, and on a low branch of the may tree hanging over the water, a black-backed gull had apparently killed its mate and was starting to eat it. This didn't seem like news that anybody wanted to hear, so I kept it to myself. Alexei, the conspicuously wall-eyed Belarusian, had gone to survey the scene from an upstairs window, and he returned to report that the car park beside the hotel was flooded completely. Insurance will cover any damage, Bill Knott soothed. It's going to be one of those fucking news clips, John Murphy said. Some fucking ape sailing down the street on a tea tray. Jesus Christ, what's that gull doing? Nora Fettel said. It was an inopportune moment to draw attention to the gull situation. The black back had just at that instant managed to prise its partner's head off and was flailing it about. Janie McAllister passed out cold on the floor. There was no getting away from the fact that we were being sucked into the deeps of an emergency. I was getting happy notions. I was thinking, the place gets wiped out. I claim the insurance, and it's Cambodia, here I come. Nora Fettel and Vivian Harty tended to Janie McAllister. She was frothing a little and moaning softly. They called for brandy. Bill Knott signalled for a fresh bushmills. John Murphy for a pint of stout. We all looked out the windows. The water had passed the fourth step and was sweeping over the porch. We were on some vague level aware that house lights still burned on the far side of the harbour, along the mountainside of Wulria. Then at once, the lights over there cut out. Good night, Irene, Bill Knott said. The worst of the news was that the emergency appeared to be localised. The fjord of Killery was flooding when no other place was flooding. The rest of the country was going about its humdrum Monday night business, watching football matches or Dan Brown adaptations, putting out the bins or putting up with their marriages, while the people of our vicinity prepared for watery graves. I felt, finally, as if I'd been accepted. And I felt that the worst possible course would be to close the bar. There was a kind of hilarity to the proceedings still, and this would not be maintained if I stopped serving booze. 
The pace of the drinking, if anything, quickened now that the waters were rising. You'd never know when you were going to lift your last. Would we want to be making south? McCarty wondered. Vivian rubbed at his wrist so tenderly that I found myself welling up. Hush, she said. Hush it, babes. If we went up past Luff Fee and swung around the far side of her, Bill Knott said, we'd nearly make it to the N-59. The Belarusians carted boxloads of old curtains down from the attic to use as sops against the doorways, but the moment the last boxload reached the bottom of the stairs, the doors popped and the waters entered. I moved everybody upstairs. There was a function room up there that I used for the occasional wedding. It had a fully stocked bar and operational disco lights. We weren't a moment too soon. As I trailed up the stairs, keeping to the rear of all my locals and Belarusians, I cast an eye back over my shoulder. It had the look of death's dateless night out there. Hup, people, I cried. Hup, for Jesus' sake. The function room was used less often than it should have been. The locals got married in Alguero if they had the price of it at all. More calls were made on mobiles. We were promised that the emergency services were being moved out. I turned off the harsh strip lighting overhead and switched to the mood lighting, which moved in lovely, dreamy disco swirls. Even yet, the rain hammered down on my old hotel at Killery. I opened the bar, and the locals weren't shy about stepping up to it. We drank. We whispered. We laughed like cats. Bill Knott reckoned the distance to Clare Island oversea if it should come to it. Of course, it would not be the first time, he said, that the likes of us would be sent hopping for the small boats. Vivian Harty whispered to Janie McAllister. Janie's colour was returning with frequent nips of my brandy. Vivian swirled it in the glass and fed it to the old lady. Her tiny, grey head she cradled on a vast lap. There's little fear of you now, my sweet, she said. Thackeray, on visiting the backwoods of Ireland, bemoaned the choking peat smoke and the obstreperous cider and the diet of raw ducks, raw peas, and also a particular inn. No pen can describe that establishment as no English imagination could have conceived it. John Murphy told us loudly that he loved his wife. She still excites me, he said. It's been 28 years and I still get a horn on me when I see that bitch climb my stairs. I went to the landing outside the function room. I looked down the road. It was a waterway. The hotel's porch had disappeared and dozens of cormorants were approaching in formation across the water. It was like the attack on Dresden. I rushed back to the function room just as the cormorants landed on the tarpaulin of the kitchen roof out back and a weeping Mick Harty was confessing to Vivian an affair of fifteen years standing with her sister. All the old filth starts to come out, Alan Fetto said. Vivian approached her husband and embraced him and planted a light kiss on his neck as they held each other against the darkness. Then she bit him on the neck. Blood came in great angry spurts. I vomited briefly and decided to put on some music. I looked out the landing window as I dashed along the corridor to get some CDs from my room. This was a bad move. Seven sheep in a rowing boat were being bobbed about on the vicious waters of Killery. The sheep appeared strangely calm. I picked lots of old familiars, old favourites. Abba, The Pretenders, Brian Adams. 
I pelted back to the function room. We're here, I cried. We might as well have a disco. Oh, and we danced the night away out on the fjord of Killery. We danced to Chiquitita, slowly and sensuously. We danced in great, wet-eyed nostalgia to brass and pocket. And we had all the old steps still, as if 1979 were only yesterday. We punched the air madly to summer of 69. I went out to the landing to find the six Belarusians sitting on the top step of the stairs. The waters of Killery were halfway up the stairs. Footstools sailed by in the lobby below, toilet rolls, placemats, phone books. But what could I do? I returned to the function room and served out pints hand over fist. All mobile signals were down. There appeared on the horizon no saviours in high-vis clothing. The waters were rising yet. And the view was suddenly clear to me. The world opened out to its grim beyonds and I realised that, at forty, one must learn the rigours of acceptance. Capitalise it. Acceptance. I needed to accept what was put before me, be it a watery grave in Ireland's only natural fjord, or a return to the city and its greyer intensities, or a wordless exile in some steaming Cambodian swamp hole, or poems or no poems, or children or not, lovers or not, illness or otherwise, success or its absence. I would accept all that was put in my way from here on through until I breathed my last. Electrified, I searched for a notebook. Bill Knott danced, John Murphy danced, the McAllisters and the Fettles waltzed, the Belarusians dry-humped one another in the function room's darker corners. The Harties were in deep emotional conversation in a banquet booth, Mick held to his bleeding neck a wad of napkins. I myself took to the floor, swivelling slowly on my feet, and I closed my eyes against the swirling disco lights. The pink backs of my lids became twin screens for flashing apparitions of my childhood pets. "'Are you enjoying yourselves, lads?' I cried. "'Oh, heel up the cart there now. "'What would we be talking about for La Fria, would you say?' Didn't I come back from that place one lung half the size of the other? Ah, sure, that's England for you. I ran out to the landing for a spot check on the flooding situation and was met there by Alexei, the wall-eyed Belarusian. He indicated with a happy jerk of his thumb the water level on the stairs. It had dropped a couple of steps. I patted his back and winked just the once and returned to the disco. 1648 was a year shy of Cromwell's landing in Ireland, and already the inn at Killery Fjord was in business. It would see out this disaster too. Now random phrases and images came at me, the sudden quick-fire assaults that signal a new idea, and I knew that they would come in sequence soon enough, their predestined rhythms would assert. I felt a new, quiet ecstasy take hold. The gloom of youth had at last lifted. That was Douglas Stewart, reading Fjord of Killery, by Kevin Barry. The story appeared in The New Yorker in February of 2010, and was included in Barry's collection, Dark Lies the Island, which was published here by Grey Wolf in 2013. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it. 
no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Douglas, before the story, you brought up the fact that the central character in it is a poet. And I'm really interested in the kind of doubling that that creates with this story, you know, that Kevin Barry is obviously a writer. He makes his narrator a writer uh, of approximately the age he was when he wrote the story. And he's not only a poet, this narrator, he's one who comments on and tracks the language that's being used by the people around him. He keeps a little notebook of, of things they're saying. <laughs> so there's kind of, um, Kevin Barry is sort of lurking inside the story as he writes it. Do, do you think it's harder to write a story where the narrator is a writer? That's a good question. Um, he certainly does it with a huge amount of ease here. And what appeals to me about this is it works on so many levels because you're anticipating that it's a story about a coming storm and people being strung together or lashed together through it. But really, I think it's more of a comment on his writer's block and him searching for himself and then releasing himself as the floods descend upon him uh, and feeling better for it, this moment passing through his life. I think in terms of him being a writer at the heart of it, it's a beautiful observation on all the ways he is listening to the stories in the bar and the language that people are using and sort of noting it and capturing it. And that's true in all of Kevin Barry's work. He has an extraordinary ability to listen to what people are saying and to capture that in their native tongue. And, and I think that's what makes his work come alive. Yeah, he's even said that if he gets stuck, he just starts writing down the dialogue he hears around him and that, that gets him moving. <laughs> Yeah, he's almost like a playwright in that as as well as a poet uh, because he reveals so much about his characters and he conceals uh, a lot and, and can tell you an, an incredible amount about the people in his stories with uh, real economy as well, which for me always has a sort of a playwright's approach to it. Yeah, this feels very much like a drama that you could see on stage. Mm, definitely, because it takes place in this single room almost. Yeah. It's all set inside and, and things happening outside are commented on rather than seen, really. Mm. But even just the wonderful way when he's talking about the funeral director and he says they were listening instead to John Murphy, our alcoholic funeral director. <laughs> and then he says, I'll bury anything that fucking moves, he says. 
Bastard suicide <laughs> tinkers, he said. I couldn't give a fucking monkeys, he said. It's just a beautiful way to to really bring that character to life in three sentences. Yeah, yeah. And and it's not he's not such a beautiful character. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're all a little bit shady and and you feel sorry for the poor poet and bartender at the heart of it, uh, yeah. being stuck with them a little bit. But that's why it has a sort of otherworldly feel to me, because they keep repeating their their own personalities or their own flaws. And it feels like they're almost stuck in a purgatory and they can't quite move forward. But I think it's funny to add in the fact that he's bought this hotel really in response to a kind of ridiculous romantic fantasy that being in the country and being around so-called real people is going to inspire him to, to greater poetic heights. Is the irony here that those people turn out to be the most prosaic people you could imagine? <laughs> Uh, I think that is definitely ironic, but I think that's also part of life. Ordinary people having just such unique views on the world. And I think you can't ever find a bigger collection of poets than in a West of Ireland pub, probably. Uh, I can't imagine a more inspiring place, actually. <laughs> and yet they're not, they're not reciting poetry. They're talking about how long it would take to drive from one place to another. <laughs> Ad nauseum, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not the most lyrical. Uh, but I mean, but they're also, you know, even uh, the characters of the hearty couple. I mean, there's romance there and there's some love there and there's certainly sexual desire. And uh, between the ruts that everyone keeps revisiting and talking about, you have you have quite a broad spectrum of life in this one wee pub. <laughs> Do you think that the Barry is partly writing about class here? You know, this poet comes in and thinks he's he's superior to uh, these sort of working class people in the pub. And I don't think Kevin Barry thinks he's that superior. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think he's absolutely writing about class and he's writing about an outsider that comes and then really establishes himself at the heart of this community. You know, pubs can often be the community centers of the towns we live in. And here is this man that's come from the big city and is really in this rural place. And they see him, I think, as an outsider, and they certainly acknowledge that he has a superiority, and he does too. Uh, but he is the heart of everyone, the center of the spoke. And that's such a privileged place to be, and it's certainly probably really inspiring. Yeah. And where did the Belarusians fit in? <laughs> the Belarusians. Well, I think that's a comment on Ireland's place in Europe as well. Uh, you know, obviously with Brexit and everything we've been having recently, immigration and uh, where the United Kingdom fits into Europe has been the top of everybody's mind. And Ireland for many years was was seen as, you know, the poor cousin of Europe because up until the 2000s and the Celtic Tiger really started roaring, people were having a really tough economic time. And so that's a really sly comment, I think, on uh, how far Ireland has come and now how it's attracting immigration from all over Europe. And uh, it's a point of pride and also a point of uh, of strife for many Irish people, I think. Yeah. There's also an interesting contrast between, you know, how much does the, the outsider from the city, who's still Irish, mm. fit in and how much do these Eastern Europeans try to fit in, which is not very much at all. They they have their own life there. Maybe a comment on how and who can assimilate. 
I think it is. And it's also a comment on these just very disparate souls pulled together in this tiny, small place and weathering this storm, which, you know, he says hasn't ever happened before or or has been at least 16 years since they've had a flood like this. And it's in a way like a drama where these cast of characters that are, are pulled from all over the world are tossed together. Yeah. And there's another subset of characters in the story and, and they're animals. Throughout the story, we get these animals sort of interspersed and anthropomorphized and there's stoats peeking shyly over the wall. There's an otter drinking carrot and coriander soup in the kitchen. <laughs> those sheep <laughs> bobbing by in a rowboat. Do you think that those animals are there in a way to mirror the humans or to contrast with them? There's almost a biblical sense of it, I think. It, it makes me think of the ark and yeah. people sort of being forced to come together because of this flood. But the way he uses them also has a sort of faulty towers approach to it, where they're always there for a comedic reason. And when he sees the seven sheep in a rowing boat were being bobbed along on the vision of waves, uh, they're just a beautiful device. Yeah. Now I'm rethinking the whole story. As soon as you said faulty towers, all I can see is that hotel. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I love about the story is the comedy in it. Um, and when he goes to the otter in the kitchen and instead of being able to chase it out the door and return it to nature, the otter just sort of moves on its own sweet way and takes its time to, to leave. And he's, he's insulted by that and he's offended. And uh, it's just so funny. And then you have this this cannibalistic seagull who's tearing its mate's head off. And just a few lines later, you have um, Vivian Hardy biting her husband in the neck. But there's definitely some kind of parallel there. <laughs> uh, I love how he combines violence with tenderness in that way. I mean, at first you think Vivian Hardy has forgiven her husband yeah. when, she, when he reveals that he's been having a decades-long affair with her sister, uh, she starts nuzzling his neck and then she bites into him. And actually, I think as a reader, I felt ah, quite right and quite so, but also <laughs> at the same time, really horrified. But uh, I love that about Irish storytelling and Scottish storytelling too, how these very opposite things can live within the same sentence or uh, at the same time. Yeah. I feel as though Kevin Barry just invests everything with personality. You know, we have a lot of personality in the animals. There's even personality in the weather, you know, the, the sky mm -hmm. is disgracefully gray or it's schizophrenic. Mm. You have the downpours hysterical. I suppose it's pathetic fallacy. How, how does that work in the story? I think it creates such a world uh, where everything has emotion and everything has feeling. And it also shows you how it has an influence on the protagonist at the center. He's really imagining the sky is out to get him and the weather is conspiring against him as though it has sentient thought. And it gives you a feeling of his isolation and how he feels everything's crashing in against him. And that is actually quite an Irish and a Scottish outlook. You know, we believe sometimes that the world is against <laughs> us and, and we're alone in our boat as, uh, as these souls are. And that is quite uh, the outlook. I think in, in the night book to Tangier, he says, you know, hard times in a Hibernian tale call for a Hibernian solution, which is, which is heavy drinking. Yeah, and, <laughs> have another pint. And that's, that is just such a great outlook <laughs> and true. I suppose also sort of having all of these adjectives applied to the natural world that just everything becomes heightened there's mm. yeah there's nothing in this landscape that doesn't have emotion as you said and then mid-flood 
we have this moment of sort of epiphany for Quivine, you know, mm. where he he suddenly realizes that all he can do is accept everything. He's been swimming against the tide and now he's going to swim with it. How do you think that revelation comes about? Oh, I think it's really extraordinary because up until this point, you do believe uh, that they're worried about their physical beings and the pub surviving and everyone making it through. And when he starts to talk about acceptance and he really capitalizes it, he says acceptance. And there's that beautiful long paragraph where he says, as a man, he has to think about whether it will be poems or no poems or children or not or lovers or not. And then you're really brought into, oh, this is what the story is about. This is a man at a turning point in his life. And he's going to give over to the the disgraceful sky outside and the and the rising floodwaters inside him and take what comes. And and even the end line of the story, I think, is is just so powerful and beautiful when he says the gloom of youth had at last lifted. And uh, it just brings it all together. And how do you interpret that last line? I think he's been searching for himself all this time. And like you said, he's moved from a big city in Ireland to the small West Coast little village. And he has felt like all of the problems have been outside him in terms of his blockage for poetry and other things. And what he's finally done is he's realized that much of the storm is within him and he can accept that and he can move beyond that. And it's as much about this really foul weather passing by as it is about him letting go and allowing uh, the blockages inside him to go. But the gloom of youth is also a really Irish line uh, <laughs> because you wouldn't normally associate gloom with youth. Uh, yeah. It would maybe come at another point in your life. And I just love how he's upended that as well. Yeah, and then right at that moment, he feels a poem coming on. <laughs> it's almost like a <laughs> you sneeze, can imagine. right? And suddenly he's he's going to be writing again. So he's accepted that he may not write, but right in that moment, he becomes able to write. Mm, he does, yeah. And, you know, I think as a writer, we often are searching for the perfect conditions to create our work or to create our art. And what this is about is about him being trapped in this pub and suddenly he understands that he just has to accept wherever he is and forge forward no matter what uh, the conditions around him are. And and that's a powerful thing, I think, for any creative to finally come to acceptance with. Uh, we're always looking for a room of our own or a quiet place or some time that's uninterrupted. And uh, here, here he has realized he just has to take it as it comes. Yeah. I did ask Kevin Barry about how the story came to him, hmm. and um, he, he told me this. He said, I was in a small hotel's bar out on the fjord of Killary during a cycling trip in the summer of 2009. The locals arranged around the bar seemed to be talking exclusively about road distances, about how long it takes to get from one place to another. The rain outside was apocalyptic, and the fjord seemed to be rising, and the story came in a fell swoop. I thought, what if the rain didn't stop? So I knew it was an end of the world story, but the end of the world is observed from a small Irish country hotel bar. How would they react? They just start drinking quicker and they decide to have a disco. But really the story is about turning 40, which I was about to do a few weeks later and realizing that you come to a time in life when the power of your will and all that striving towards self-determination are only worth so much. And really now it's all about acceptance, accepting whatever is put in your path, everything glorious and everything catastrophic and what a release this can be. And yes, he's encapsulating it after the fact, but it's a sort of perfect summary of, of what we find on the page. Um, mm. It's very beautifully put, in fact. Yeah, yeah. 
And he points out that the flood, in a sense, and everything about the bar and the hotel is a kind of device to get us to this turning point in this man's life. Mm-hmm. Um, what to me is kind of the miracle of writing is how you how you sit in a bar and hear people talking about distances while it's raining, and then that becomes a story about a huge change in life. Um, I wonder if is is that ever how inspiration comes to you? I think it's the only way that inspiration sometimes comes to me <laughs> is observing the smaller moments of life and. And much like Kevin Barry, I find myself sort of listening to snippets of conversation and just watching how the people around me carry themselves through the room. I find great power in observation and being led by the smaller moments of just ordinary days. And this is the really wonderful thing about Kevin's story is on the surface of it, it's a very ordinary day in a bar that's facing this terrible weather outside. And yet it is such a pivotal moment in the protagonist and the author's life. Uh, And he's managed to conjure it out of these really small details of people uh, drinking a storm away in a West of Ireland pub. (laughs) (laughs) And as you said, to to instill it with comedy, you know, I I laugh out loud every time he runs and gets his Brian Adams CDs. (laughs) (laughs) It's when he looks out the window and he knows he shouldn't and the the sheep are bobbing by. But there's comedy, there's just charm throughout this story. And that's why I love Kevin Barry's writing. You know, when he says we drank, we whispered, we laughed like cats. And it's just so um, charming, I think, is the word. And also incredibly generous in a way because... He's invoking sort of this warmth of humanity, and he's very fond of these people, even when they do terrible things or when they say terrible things. Yeah. And I feel as though there's a way in which he uses this storm and he uses the animals to debunk everything this poet has believed in. You know, he's gone to the the west of Ireland thinking he's going to sort of find solace in the natural world. It turns out the natural world is not particularly poetic. It's about seagulls who eat each other. (laughs) Yeah, um, And then he finds some poetry in these ordinary people, after all. He does, yeah. He finds poetry in real life. And even when he talks about, uh, you know, there's not a rock in the west of Ireland that a poet hasn't sat on, because we're all poets uh, and we all have the ability or the capability to create beautiful things inside of us. And I think that's just a beautiful sentiment as well. Yeah. So I know a story ends when a story ends, but what do you think uh, (laughs) Quivian will do when the waters drop? Well, I don't think he gets to Cambodia. Uh, (laughs) It's something I'm pretty sure about. I hope hope he accepts his where he is at the moment and creates the poetry and the art inside him. And one of the things that comes away from me is although he keeps looking outside and keep imagining another life that he could lead, that's something we all do, I think. I have a sense that he has found where he's supposed to be and really he is at the heart of this community. And I think he's I think he's home. Well, thank you so much, Douglas. Thank you so much, Deborah. Kevin Barry is the author of six books of fiction, including the novel City of Bohane, for which he won the International Dublin Literary Award in 2013 the novel Night Boat to Tangier, which was longlisted for the Booker Prize, and most recently, the story collection That Old Country Music, which was published here in January. Douglas Stewart's first published story, Found Wanting, appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2020, 
and his debut novel Shaggy Bane, which won the Booker Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Award, was published later last year. You can download more than 160 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.